Well, good evening. If y'all, uh, if y'all see, happen to see my wife, my lovely wife, in the next couple of days, wish her a happy birthday because that's tomorrow. Um, we were supposed to go out to eat tomorrow night with her, with uh, her mom and her sister, but uh, my son today was diagnosed with the flu. So. Uh, and he's doing fine. He, he's had it for several days and just acted like, well, you know, I feel a little achy, that's all. So, um, but that means we'll have to put off, and Carrie's fine with it because she doesn't mind waiting a while to turn an, another year older. See, so she, that's her philosophy. Until we celebrate it, it isn't real. So, <laughs> y'all turn with, well, y'all turn with me to, to uh, 2 Kings chapter 2. Verse 23 through 25. That's, a scripture is in on, on your sheet, but you may want to see it in your Bible as well. Um, so some years ago, I may have told you all this story. If, if I have, just humor me. That's what my family does when I do this. Um, but I, I'm sorry, that's 1 Kings 2, 23. 1 Kings 2. Wait, I'm, I'm all messed up. Hang on. Well, they're going to enjoy this if they listen to the podcast, aren't they? It's 2 Kings. Yeah, 2 Kings 2. 2 Kings 2, 23. So uh, years ago when I was pastor of another church, we had a, 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 a visitation night. And we did it on Wednesday nights. We would do Wednesday night church, and then we'd go out visiting. You know, I talked Sunday morning about how times have changed, and that's not as successful as it used to be. And, and this was the period when I began to realize it, it wasn't the same. And these weren't even cold calls we were making. We would We would... We would visit people who had visited our church, and we would call ahead to make sure it was okay that we came. And still, we had a hard time getting anybody to let us come over. Well, all that to say, one night, uh, only two people showed up for visitation. And one was a guy named John, and one was a guy named Dale. And uh, John was a guy who really, and he, he, was, he hadn't been saved all that long, but because he was a relatively new Christian, he loved going on visitation, he loved sharing the gospel. Uh, Dale had been a Christian a long time, and he worked in human resources at one of the chemical plants near where our church was. And so his job was to hire and fire, right? Uh, and he always told me, because I'd say to Dale, I just don't know how you can do that. I just don't know. I, it would tear me up to fire people. And he'd say, you know, Jeff, they always pretty much fire themselves. So that night, Dale and John were the only ones there. And we had this list of people to visit. And I called out the first name. And I heard John make this noise, and I looked at him, and I said, what? And he goes, I can't go visit that guy. And I said, why not? And he goes, because I beat him up once. <laughs> and I said, what? And he said, yeah, it was before I was a Christian, but yeah, we were out drinking, and he got on my nerves, and yeah, I beat him up. I mean, I really did. And, and so I looked over at Dale, and Dale had this funny smile on his face, and I said, don't tell me you fired him. And he said, yeah, he used to work for us, and I fired him. <laughs> And then he goes, well, you know, really, he fired himself. And John goes, well, he kind of beat himself up, too. <laughs> and I love that. If I ever write a book about my experience as a pastor, that will go in it. Because it's, you know, when you come to church, you just think everything's going to be proper and, and dignified and, and sweet and nice and polite. But every once in a while, the real world comes poking in. You realize people are real and raw. Um, I say all that because... The Bible is real and raw. The Bible is not afraid of the, of the real truth. The Bible is not proper. 
The Bible's not, the Bible is not uh, dignified the way we would put it. There are lots of stories that uh, would shock us if we read them out loud in big church or in your life group class. Um, and this is one of those. We're going to look at it today. We're in this tough question series, and we're in the, the section of those tough questions where we're just looking at specific passages and how we work those out in our minds. This is one of those passages you've probably read and wondered about. So this is, uh, this is uh, 2 Kings 2, 23-25. It says, From there Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. Go on up, you bald head. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. So that story is just right there, and it's never referred to again. It just sort of happens, those three verses. And people, I've had so many people, when they hit that for the first time, come to me and say, I just read this. What does that mean? What is that all about? Does it, is, it, is it a sin to make fun of bald-headed men? Is it, is it that if you, if you give a preacher a hard time, it's bad news for you? I kind of like that interpretation. <laughs> but what does it mean? Well, let's, take, let's, talk, let's look at the broader picture. Let's look at the background first of all. So Israel at this time was in a time of spiritual decline, a time of spiritual crisis. Uh, how bad was it? Well, the king of the land was named Ahab. Um, Ahab, uh, you see it in your notes, 1 Kings 16.30, it says, Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. If you ever read the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles, you know that's really saying something. Because Israel and Judah both had some really terrible kings, but Ahab topped them all. One of the main things he did wrong was he married a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of a Canaanite king named Ethbaal. Ethbaal means Baal exists. So Baal was the god of the Canaanites, the fertility god of the Canaanites. So they would sacrifice to him so they'd get a good harvest. Uh, when Jezebel came in, she came in with an agenda. She was determined that she was going to wipe out the worship of Yahweh throughout Israel. And she persuaded her husband to build a gigantic temple to Baal in Samaria, which was the capital of, of northern Israel, uh, and also another one to Asherah, who was uh, the mother of Baal, because Baal needs his mommy nearby. So um, she also uh, rounded up the prophets of the Lord and had them all executed. And if not for a courageous man named Obadiah, not the prophet Obadiah, but a different man, who shielded and hid a hundred of the prophets of the Lord, they would have been all massacred, and there had been no more voice for God in northern Israel. And by the way, it wasn't just idolatry. It led to some serious, like, like always, when we start following a different God other than the true God, it changes our character. And so there were, there was some serious injustice going on in, in Israel. Just for one example, there was a man named Naboth who had a, a piece of land near uh, Ahab and Jezebel's land. And Ahab and Jezebel had him framed and executed, although he was an innocent man, just so they could get his land. That kind of thing was going on. So along came Elijah, and I've always said that I love the stories of Elijah because he's everything that I wish I was in terms of boldness and courage and, and power. I mean, Elijah came into, he was basically one man against thousands, uh, standing boldly for the Lord in, in a, in, behind enemy lines, and he had the power to do things like make it stop raining for years or call down fire from heaven. And his job was to preach and to show the Israelites 
God is real and he's not happy with you and you need to change your ways or judgment is coming. And so Elijah came into Israel and preached these powerful messages and then all of a sudden he was gone. See, Elisha had come along, a man who had grown up with considerable wealth and had left it all behind to follow Elijah and be his his servant, basically just to be his, his gopher, you might say. And, and he's walking with Elijah one day, and suddenly a, a whirlwind comes and takes Elijah up to heaven. He's one of two people in the Bible that never died. And you know who the other one was, right? Enoch. Somebody said that. Yeah, Enoch, uh, back in, in Genesis. So Elijah goes to heaven, and there's Elisha left with nothing. Now, he's never preached a sermon or, or worked a miracle that we know of, and now the mantle is upon him. And so Elisha picks up Elijah's mantle, his, his uh, prophet, prophet's robe, and he puts it on his shoulders and he begins to walk back, retrace the steps back through Jericho and on up to Bethel um, so he can start doing Elisha, Elijah's job. And then these boys show up, 42 of them, or these, these boys, and we don't know how old they were. If you have a King James Bible, it says young children, I think. Um, other by, uh, others like mine say youths. That's because the Hebrew word can mean either one. It can mean little kids or it can mean young men up to 30 years old. We don't know how old they were. Um, when they call him bald head, now listen, this is just speculation on the part of some scholars, but some scholars say, well, maybe that was because the old prophets, maybe they would mark themselves by shaving a portion of their hair like, like a monk in medieval times. There's no proof of that, but it's just a, an idea that some had. Well, maybe that's why they were making fun of him, not just because he didn't have any hair, but because they were making fun of him as a prophet. Another thing I've read is the speculation that when they're saying, go on up, they're mocking the idea that Elijah went to heaven. Oh yeah, we heard that story that Elijah just went on up to heaven. Why don't you go on up to? That that's what they're saying. And so playing into his grief. What we know for sure is these guys, these kids, had been afraid of Elijah. Nobody was going to stand up to him. But now he's gone. And they feel free. They feel free to assault and insult his right-hand man, Elisha. They think, now the big bad Elijah's gone, we can do whatever we want. But God hasn't gone anywhere. And that's where the true power lies. There's some similar stories in the Bible to this. Stories of, of God's wrath breaking out in sudden and shocking ways. Uh, Numbers 16 tells the story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, three men who tried to usurp Moses' power in the wilderness. So the Israelites are going through the, junior, uh, through the wilderness trying to get to uh, the promised land, and these three men rise up and say, listen, we're getting nowhere. Uh, we, we have nothing but this stupid manna to eat. Let's just, y'all follow us. Let's leave Moses behind. Let's go back to Egypt. And the earth opened up and swallowed them whole. In 2 Samuel 6, we read the story of a young man named Uzzah. Uh, the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's presence, which had had always st stayed in the sanctuary, the tabernacle of God and the Holy of Holies. And, and that's where the high priest would go to make atonement. 
The Ark of God had been captured by the Philistines in battle, and it had been in their possession for years, but now it was coming home. Now the Israelites, David included, were bringing it back to Jerusalem where it belonged, and it was being transported on an ox cart. Uzzah was one of the young men who was transporting it, and when one of the ox stumbled, Uzzah just instinctively reached out his hand to keep the Ark from falling, and when he touched it, he instantly died. And David was so disturbed by that, he left the ark where it was for a while. He said, I, I, God is too much for me. Then, there, then there's Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And don't tell me you haven't thought about this with a little fear and trembling once in a while. <laughs> Ananias and Sapphira were a wealthy couple who sold some land. They had seen how much praise that Barnabas got when he sold some family land and gave uh, the, the proceeds to the apostles. So they did the same thing, but secretly they held back some of it. They thought, well, we'll we can, we can, we can uh, make this a win-win situation. We'll give some to the church and get all the praise and, and adulation, but we'll keep some for ourselves, and so we'll be a little richer. Uh, but they acted like it was the full amount, and when Peter confronted them separately, both of them dropped dead instantly. Now, these are disturbing stories. If they don't bother you when you read them, then I wonder about you. But, but what do they really tell us about God? Well, first of all, they tell us He is a God of absolute righteousness. And one aspect of His righteousness is His wrath. The wrath of God is something we don't talk about much in church these days because people don't want to hear about it. People would rather pretend it doesn't exist. But I've, I, the more you study the wrath of God, the more you realize this is not something to dread, it's something to praise God for. Uh, God's wrath is an indication that He hates sin. We don't want a God that doesn't hate sin. A God who doesn't hate sin is like a judge who lets child molesters off with nothing but a warning. Uh, a, God with, a God who doesn't hate sin is a God who will not defend his people who will not overturn injustice. Uh, God's wrath, the reason, that's one reason we shouldn't be afraid of God's wrath. Another reason is because his wrath is nothing like our anger. I think that's what bothers us is we read these stories and we think, oh, well, that's just like me flying off the handle at one of my kids or at my wife or at that guy who cut me off on the freeway. I don't want God to be uh, that kind of capricious and, and out of control kind of being, and I don't either. Thankfully, that's not who he is. When we read the scriptures, we see that God's, God's anger is always based on his righteousness. One way I, I, I understand it is when my kids were little, if I punish them in anger, if I punish them because they were, they were getting on my nerves or inconveniencing me in some way, there's nothing righteous about that. And I have to admit I did that at times. But when I punish them because I was looking out for their good, when I made them suffer consequences so they would learn, that is righteous. Can we all agree on that? So just as an example, if uh, when one of my kids was little, if I wanted to watch a football game, but they wanted to watch a movie, and if I got mad and I grabbed their movie and flung it out the window, there's nothing righteous about that. That's childishness. But if, on the other hand, I wouldn't let them watch the movie because I knew it was not something they should be watching, or if taking away that movie was a way to discipline them for something else they'd done, to teach them a lesson, now that's righteous. God's wrath is always righteous. It is always for the sake of making us righteous. It is always for the sake of expelling evil. Never for the sake of, of his wounded pride or his wounded uh, sense of convenience or laziness. And so when we look at these stories through that lens, we start to see them differently. For instance, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, right? 
what they were accused of, what they were doing, wasn't just preaching against Moses. They were preaching against God. They were trying to keep the people from obeying God's will. They were sending their people back into slavery. Think about Uzzah and the ark. That's the one that's, that's so hard for us because it seems so innocent. Uzzah just reaches up to study the ark. But then you realize they should have known God had laid out very specifically the requirements for transporting the ark of the covenant. And they all should have known that. It was right there in the law. It had to be transported by priests. It had to be carried with poles through the handles. And, and, and there, was, there were reasons for that. God wanted people to respect his holiness and his righteousness. Uh, and then, of course, the story of, of Elisha and those, those boys. They weren't just making fun of a prophet. They were opposing God's purposes. They were saying, these were pagan young men saying, we're back on top. God showed them, I'm still here. You cannot, you cannot uh, disobey me and expect to get off without any consequences. And you might say, well, yeah, but these stories, the way they're written, it just makes God sound so short-tempered. And to that, I will say a couple of things. Number one, it ought to comfort you to know that there's only a handful of these kinds of stories in the, in the Bible. For the most part, the wrath of God seems to be natural consequences. It seems to be, uh, to put it in our terms, if you abuse your body, you're not going to live as long. If you gossip, you're not going to have any friends. Uh, if, if you dally on your spouse, you cheat on your spouse, your marriage is going to end. Wrath is uh, God not protecting us from our consequences. In the same way, the Israelites experienced the consequences of God when God said, listen, if you don't want me to be your God anymore, I'll let you experience life without me. And then they were pillaged, plundered, and taken into captivity. That, for the most part, is what the wrath of God looks like. There's only, in 66 books of the Bible, there's only a handful of instances where God broke out in some spectacular, non-natural way. It's not his usual way of doing things. So if you're afraid based on these stories that uh, the next time you tell a lie or the next time you uh, lose your temper, you're just going to drop dead, that's probably not going to happen. That's not how God tends to operate. Number two, though, if God is God and we're not, I think we can all agree on that, and if that means his ways are higher than ours, and I certainly hope they are, that's what the Bible says, if not, he's not much of a God. But they are. If God's ways are higher than ours, isn't it possible that he has a morally defensible reason for doing things that we can't understand? I mean, think about it this way. When you were a small child, did your parents make decisions that you disagreed with and didn't understand? Yes. Yes. You may not be able to remember them now, but I can remember some from when I was little. And yet you grow up and you look back on those and you think, oh, now I understand. And if that's true of, of a human like your mom or dad, how much more true is it of God that, that his ways are so much higher than ours that someday when we are in his presence and we start to learn all things and, and have more capacity for understanding, we'll look back and say, okay, now I understand, God, why you did what you did. And then the third thing I would say to people who say God was unfair, God was capricious, God was too angry, I would say you're assuming that Someone dying is the worst possible thing that could happen. And that's a false assumption. See, what if, what if God took the lives of these people to prevent further darkness? What if God knew, if I don't end your life now, things are going to get even worse for you and for the people around you. You're going to cause damage 
uh, in a much, much bigger way. Some have pointed out that all the examples I talked about uh, came during a period of time when something, it was a time of spiritual crisis. Uh, again, Moses. This is a time when it was make or break. You either get to the promised land or you cease to be a people. Uh, time of Elijah and Elisha. Uh, the, the people were starting to turn away from God, absolutely. God had to make a stand. Uh, the time of the apostles with, with Ananias and Sapphira, the church was just getting started. Did, the church, did God want to allow the church to get started on uh, a foundation of, of lies and manipulation? No, he had to do something. He had to take action. Uh, so God knows what he's doing. Now, objection number two, some would say, but Jeff, you're just taking God's side on all of this. You're giving God the benefit of the doubt. You're assuming that everything he does is right and good, and you're, you're assuming that we can't possibly criticize him, and, and that is true. But I have my reasons for that, and I'll get to those in a moment. So second point when it comes to these stories, what do they tell us about God? His wrath comes when we don't take his righteousness seriously. And this is where those of us who are believers in Jesus need to stand up and pay attention, because so far we've probably been sitting there looking at this kind of dispassionately, but the people in these stories, in one sense or another, would have been considered people of God. Even, even those who were pagan worshipers were still Jews and would have probably thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm still part of the chosen people. We, as part of Christ's body, should never take for granted the fact that our actions have consequences as well. So I'm, I'm reminded of the story of uh, D.A. Carson, who's a theologian, and, and pastor and writer. And years ago, in his younger years, he was studying abroad, and he met a West African man, uh, and they got to be friends. And they both spoke French. D.A. Carson's from uh, Canada, and he grew up speaking French, and so did this man in Africa. And the, so they would get together and drink coffee, and they'd speak French to each other. And one day, he found out this man had a habit of going to the red light district of town and visiting prostitutes. And he said, well, brother, aren't you married? He said, yeah, I'm married. And he said, well, if your wife was doing something like that, how, well, how would you react? And he'd say, oh, I'd kill her. And he said, well, don't you understand? You, you grew up in a missionary school. You know what God requires. You know how he feels about adultery. And then the man smiled this big smile, and he said, well, yeah, but he's God. He forgives. That's his job. And Paul talks about that in his word, talks about this idea that People could take advantage of grace and say, oh, well, God's honor bound to forgive. And so we can let us, let us sin all the more that grace may abound. And that's a heresy. That's, that's an abomination in the sight of God. And I don't think anybody in this room would say, yeah, adultery is fine because God will forgive you like that man did. But how many of us have excused our own sins? How many of us have said, oh, what I'm doing isn't so bad, especially not compared to that person over there? My pride, my vanity, my idolatry, my gossip, my hatred, my resentment, whatever the case may be. And we refuse to deal with it. And I'm not saying, believe me, I'm not saying that any of you are going to just drop dead one of these days because of your sin. That's Again, that's something in the scriptures that we see that's very rare. I'm really glad nobody dropped dead when I said that. That would have been bad. But I am saying our unrepented sin has consequences. And we ought to we ought, to, we ought to tremble when we think about that. Then the third thing, and that brings us to the subject of fear. The Bible is very clear that we need to fear the Lord. And that doesn't mean uh, the word fear, the English word fear is not adequate because it only means one thing in English. 
But in Hebrew, it means something very different. It, it, it's a very vast concept. And, and when we talk about fearing the Lord, it doesn't mean that we, that we cringe before him, that we're afraid of him, that we, we hope he doesn't come near. That's not what it means. I, I think it's more like the relationship, a healthy relationship with a really good father. Because if you grew up with a really good father, as, as I did, and I'm sure many of you did, you enjoyed being with your dad. You loved being with him. But you never thought you were his equal. I mean, even when you grew up and, and even when maybe uh, he had gotten old and you were, you were a little bigger and stronger than he was, you still, you still had a respect for him, right? I mean, my dad, I, I, we're great friends, but there are things, there are teasing kinds of things that I'll do with my other friends that I won't do with my dad because he's my dad, right? There's a respect there. There's a, there's a certain fear of reverence. And that's a very poor analogy, but it, it gets at the root of fearing the Lord doesn't mean that we don't love him. In fact, fear is part of that love. It's, it's, it's accepting, it's acknowledging the fact that we're not equals. We don't want to be equals. We don't want a God who stoops to our level. We want a God who's God. and we, we want to acknowledge him for what he is. Now, earlier I said... We're giving God the benefit of the doubt in all these arguments. We're seeing this from his point of view. And the reason for that is he's earned it. He's earned that kind of trust. So I'll look at it this way. Let's say you're a young woman and you've been dating a young man for a couple of weeks and you have a big date scheduled and he doesn't show up and he doesn't call and you wait and you wait and you wait and you finally, get, you finally just give up. Now, what do you assume? you assume maybe he's out with another girl. At best, he's a very thoughtless person and you don't want to see him again. On the other hand, let's say the same situation happens, but this time it's not a, a boyfriend you've been dating for a couple of weeks. It's a husband who's been faithful and considerate and has proven himself for years. Let's say you've been married for 25, 30, 40 years. He's never done anything like this before. Your assumptions are completely different, aren't they? If you have any sanity about yourself at all, ladies, you think to yourself, there's probably an explanation for this. He might have gotten, maybe there was a crisis at work, maybe his phone is broken, maybe he's stranded on the side of the road, but this is not his fault. Your knowledge of who he is changes your assumptions. You give him the benefit, benefit of the doubt based on what you know of his character. What do we know of the character of God? We know we know the most important thing about him, the thing to which the whole Bible points, is that he came down in the form of a man and died for our sins. Why did he do that? Hebrews 12 says that he did it for the joy set before him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. What possible joy would there be in dying on a cross? Well, I know some religions teach that if you die a martyr's death, you go straight to heaven, but that wasn't his concern. His home was heaven. He was going to go to heaven no matter what. What was the joy set before him? The only joy, the only reward he got for dying was us. And that brought him joy. That enabled him to die joyfully. That's how much you mean to him. Does he ever need to do anything again to prove his love for you or me after he's done that? I mean, isn't that the greatest thing anybody can ever do? He traded places with us. And therefore, he's earned some benefit of the doubt. And therefore, we can say, well... This story looks bad, but I'm going to choose to see it through his point of view. I'm going to choose to assume the best because I know who he is. 
And so when I read about Elisha cursing those those youths and God allowing bears to maul them, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to see this in the most positive light possible. And where I don't understand, I'm going to say, there's an explanation there somewhere, and I'll find out in due time. And we owe God that. He has earned that from us. And I have every confidence that that is the correct way to be. So that's that's the answer I have for you, and I feel confident in it. Let me close this in a word of prayer tonight. Lord Jesus, we come before you, and we're grateful for who you are and that we can trust you. But we can trust you with these questions that are mysterious, these passages in Scripture that we have a hard time with. We can trust you with the things that happen in our lives that don't seem to make sense. The times we pray and, Lord, it doesn't get answered the way we thought it would. The times when you allow things to happen that just don't uh, square with what we understand as, as good. Lord, we can trust you. We can believe that you have a reason that we may not understand now, but we will in time. Lord, teach us to have even more faith in you. Father, I want to lift up our student ministry this weekend as they get ready for Disciple Now and pray, Lord, that you would keep the kids safe, that uh, you would do incredible things through that and bring about salvation and renewal and transformation, bind them together. Uh, I pray, Lord, for Michael and Hannah, that they would uh, just continue to fit in even better with our students. Lord, provide her with a job in your time and, and bless them in every way. And Lord, bless our church and turn us into the, the kind of church that reaches people for you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.